Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome to Untying Knots on Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark with you, licensed marriage and family therapist. So I want to start with our classic disclaimer that this show is not a substitute for mental health services. I strongly recommend you seek a therapist or mental health professional in your area to work on your unique issues. This is for education and entertainment purposes only. So today I have an absolute treat and uh, we are, be upfront, we're recording this right now in May for its airing in September. And uh, this also happens to be my anniversary episode, so a year of doing all of this. So the treat for you today, I have a very prolific author, uh, both of book and television, who I just finished from listening to Ghost to Summer and I consistently listen to their podcasts as well. And I thank Terry Gamble for seriously suggesting that I contact this, uh, this writer. So with no other attend, our, our guest today is Tana Vadu. Tana Vadu is an award-winning author who teaches Black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA. She is, the, she is an executive producer on Shudder's groundbreaking documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. She, she and her husband collaborator, Stephen Barnes, wrote a small town for season two of The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access. A leading voice in black speculative fiction for more than 20 years, Duho has won an American Book Award and NAACP, I don't know why I'm screwing up on that, um, Image Award and a British fa- Fantasy Award and her writing has been included in the best of the year anthologies or best of the year anthologies her book include her books include ghost summer stories my soul to keep and the good house she and her late mother civil rights activist patricia St- stevens do co-authored freedom in the family a mother daughter's journey of the fight for civil rights she is married to author stephen brown barnes with whom she collaborated on screenplays they live with their son jason and two cats so, so true. So true. Kind of a do. People ask time. me this. I will correct the pronunciation of my name because okay. it's it's a little challenging. It's Tanana Reeve. Tanana Reeve. I'm my yeah. my my Tanana Reeve. Do that's fine. My sincere apologies for that. But thank you for being here. You are a brilliant, lovely, talented, insightful author. Oh wow! Thank you. Oh no! All things are due there. So. <laughs> So my question to you is, how did you get here? Wow. Uh, Yeah. How did I get here? (laughs) You know, I asked myself that question quite a bit. I remember very vividly just being uh, a young girl who liked writing. I always wrote stories, little picture books. My mother would make copies of some of them. I would Mm -hmm. read them in front of my class sometimes. In high school, I had a teacher who read a 200-word novel in progress. And I just remember very vividly that time of being a dreamer. And then even after I started publishing books in 1995, I was also, again, mystified by how do you write for TV or how do you write screenplays? How do you get a film agent? And I spent a long time wondering that um, in some in some ways still wondering, uh, although I, I have started getting work produced finally. But 
how I got here, I think probably uh, two big things for me were unwavering parental support. Mm-hmm. My husband is always telling me because, I, you know, he he didn't have unwavering parental support. His father was not in the home. His mother was very fearful of him pursuing the arts for for the uncertainty and all those reasons. And I often say, oh, if I had come up that way, I don't know. I don't know if I would have been a writer. I don't know. He's always saying, yeah, you would. You would have found your way. But I honestly don't know. I I think if I'd even had a whiff of disapproval mm-hmm. from my parents, who were civil rights activists, my late mother, uh, Patricia Stevens, do was in the Florida Civil Rights Hall of Fame. My father is still living, 87 years old, a civil rights lawyer. And I think I really felt like our family business in some ways was trying to make the world a better place. And if I had not thought that they believed that writing and the arts could be a part of that, I might have lost interest in it. I don't know, though. That first media law class bored me to tears. So there was no way I was going to follow (laughs) in my father's footsteps to law school. Uh, um, The other thing in terms of how did I get here is just persistence absolute uh, single-mindedness. I knew, as I said, from a very young age that I wanted to be a writer. So even when I was going to high school and I had to make the choice, I thought between writing and music, I play piano for fun, but I, I could have joined the band and I, I wanted to learn other instruments, but I thought mm, that's just going to be a distraction for my writing. So I was really cutting off other avenues from a pretty young age and pursuing writing with a very single-minded focus, even majoring in journalism in college was not because I wanted to be a journalist. That just seemed like what I needed to do if I wanted to make a living while I was on my way to being an author. Mm-hmm. So every decision has been about that. And that's the advice I give to uh, writers, perspective, people who would like to be writers. Mm-hmm. First of all, give yourself permission to think of yourself as a writer, which I got from my parents. That gave me the permission. And I gave myself the permission. But secondly, once you've made that decision, you have to do something. You have to have sustained action over time to get those goals. Mm-hmm. That That's interesting, you know, because before we could start talking about the Afrofuturism, I think that's an interesting place, because I know one of the things I wanted to capture with this podcast was also talking to creatives and creators about mental health as well, and also that, I guess, cultural standpoint of how has our culture been affected in quieting those voices or not seeing those voices as being something that can be incorporated into the survival of our people. Yeah. You know, even my son, who's not an artist per se, I mean, he likes to rap and he'll make up some bars, but even my son, just in having aspirations beyond Mm -hmm. what his friend's aspirations are Mm -hmm. is noticing some of that pushback, Mm -hmm. right. Kind of trying to tear him down a little bit, just a little bit tearing down. And, and historically, If you really think about it, it's such a luxury to have an artist class, you know. So if you're a family of sharecroppers and from a very young age, everybody has to pick in or you're not going to be able to make your quotas and you're not going to get paid. There's no patience for that child who wants to be a poet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, you got to be out. You can make up some poems while you're out there working. okay? but and you but you may not even have the education to learn how to write them down. Mm-hmm. much less the vision on how to get them published or how to, to bring them before people. So, you know, I just saw a tweet from someone saying their grandmother's turning a hundred years old and she, our great grandmother, and she was raised by her grandparents who were born enslaved. Mm-hmm. 
we are not that far away as African-Americans from slavery. So a lot of the questions that we have about where we are or where we aren't, I can just point to that. Say, well, Mm -hmm. a lot of these mindsets, a lot of these uh, notions of what can and cannot be achieved, a lot of this is still wrapped up in the limitations that have been imposed upon us as a people. You know, we're still getting firsts in 2022 for, you know, all kinds of things. So yeah, that's why I'm really, really glad, you know, that my parents helped me understand that even in the 1960s, the NAACP uh, had a very strong interest in their Beverly Hills Hollywood branch. Mm-hmm. And in the importance of representation, even then, even when they were getting fire hosed and mm-hmm. murdered for trying to vote, they still were like, no, but we need Hera Belafonte. We need Sidney Poitier in front of those cameras. And and my mother strongly believed that, too. And we need that even more in these other places, such as the um, talk I was just listening to of you guys from you and Stephen's uh, podcast, the Life Writing Course, last night with uh, Keela Cooper, who is one yes. of the executive producers on star trek strange new worlds which yes and i also just recently watched that episode too Ooh, i have my, i have some mixed feelings about it but i get okay what she was it was uhura to, especially i had all the feels for uhura oh <laughs> uh, i enjoyed the uhura aspect although i do kind of have my points of like can we also have characters without always having the tragic backstory mm. well that's true that's it's true. like that's another that level I, yeah it's like she could be also motivated to go into starfleet not based off of tragedy. True, true. So, and that's one of my small criticisms of it, but I still love the series. I love the work they're doing on it. Um, so that I think leads to a lovely place about talking about Afrofuturism, which you are a you're teaching at L- UCLA about. And I'm kind of curious, well, how would you sum up what the essence of Afrofuturism is? And also what's your thoughts about where mental health sits in that entire genre? That's actually a great question. And different people describe Afrofuturism in different ways. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the specific term was coined in the 1990s by a cultural critic named Mark Derry. And he was looking at primarily African-American uh, futurism, not just in the arts. And by the arts, I mean music, like Sun Ra mm-hmm. and uh, films, which really there weren't that many <laughs> until, mm-hmm. that, until recently. Um, and literature, right? But also uh, conversations about the digital divide and and concerns with real-life futurism. The way I teach Afrofuturism and define it at UCLA is more the Black speculative arts movement. Mm -hmm. So that would mean it's the science fiction, fantasy, and horror, to me, of the African diaspora, not just Mm -hmm. African-American, but Nalo Hopkinson as Mm -hmm. uh, Caribbean um, and African futurism, Mm -hmm. which uh, Nettie Akorafor is doing. I Which really I read also. It. Yeah, I, I consider it all this huge umbrella term. And it's mm-hmm. a pretty sprawling because it's everything from how you interpret the music of Miles Davis when he created sort of that electro jazz sound mm-hmm. uh, to George Clinton to Janelle Monet and mm-hmm. then Octavia Butler. And one student asked, well, did they all have conversations? And only if only they had, but no, no, they weren't having conversations, but they were, well, some of them were, but -hmm. for the most part, you just had a a bunch of individual black artists addressing the boxes that -hmm. they had been put into in the arts and trying Mm -hmm. to bust out of the boxes. So if you're Mm -hmm. in music, you're, 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 you're fusing different sounds, you're, you're 
busting out of expectations of what black music is and can be mm-hmm. and creating something new. Sometimes it does have to do with futurism and utopianism like Sun Ra and the, and the mothership like George Clinton, but it's also the expression of the music and the, and the way it's different and new and it's genre bending. And it's uh, like, like Lil Nas today would be a good example of Afrofuture or Janelle Monet mm-hmm. um, in terms of gender and sexuality. But then you have Octavia Butler also mm-hmm. constantly holding a mirror up to society and saying, what are y'all going to do about this? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about hierarchy? Because it's going to kill us. What are you going to do about the way we're consuming this planet? Because it's going to kill us. And every book she wrote <laughs> was some version of that question and that presentation. And it is a unified conversation, mm-hmm. even if they never met, because it is about Black futurity in many ways, even if it's horror or even if it's uh, alternate history, it is planting us in the past where we were erased from. Michaela Cooper talked about this in my podcast. We weren't mm-hmm. in the past. We weren't in the future. So we're inserting ourselves in the past, future and present simultaneously mm-hmm. and charting a path for human survival. I won't even say black survival because if black people survive, then then y'all and everybody else is going to be okay. That's Mm -hmm. it. You know, Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. in terms of mental health, you know, the best example I can give for that would be the reason I decided that I think my mother was a horror fan. I never really had the conversation with her about why. I don't know why. Why? I never asked why. I just took it for granted. She loved horror. She always had she was sitting us in front of the TV watching uh, movies that were probably too scary for us at a young age. Mm-hmm. And it's only in recent years since her loss, because she passed away in 2012, and also since Get Out, when there's been more conversation about Black horror and what mm-hmm. Black horror accomplishes, that mm-hmm. I really can see better. My mother was using Black horror as a form of therapy. And people who don't like horror will be like, well, how can that be? Because horror is stressful. No, life is stressful. Horror is a bunch of fake stuff on a screen that you can either turn off or walk away from. Mm-hmm. Whereas my mother was terrified that her grandsons would be shot by police. That's real. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a mummy or a zombie is not any match for the state violence that she suffered in the 1960s as a civil rights activist, wore dark glasses her whole adult life after the age of 20 because a police officer threw a tear gas canister in her face as a leader nonviolent leader of a movement so they could sit at a damn lunch counter in Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. So uh, not, never mind the vote. Um, so it was her way, I think, when, and there have been some studies about this and some conversation about horror in particular, mm-hmm. how it enables us to sort of, first of all, confront some fears head on in a very visceral way so that the zombie becomes the stand-in for the way it feels like society is falling apart and you are the survivor. You are like, pick up a weapon, run, whatever it is. We're training ourselves for crisis behavior. Mm -hmm. And also, sometimes you can kill that damn monster, right? And I'm sorry, that just feels good. You can't kill Mm -hmm. the monster. Sometimes you can't even see the monster in real life. The monster is just in the air you breathe. It's like like at the bank, it's at the real estate office, it's at your child's school. I mean, the monster is everywhere. You can't just go around killing the monster. It takes so many forms. They don't know they're the monster. There's a lot, okay, involved with killing the monster. But if you have a, a fake monster in a horror movie or a horror novel, you just get that feeling that, yeah, I, if, I, if I channel all my energy and intelligence and survival drive, I can't win. 
Mm-hmm. And in terms of the futurism piece, just to know, first of all, we were here in the past and we will be here in the future is the answer to the erasure mm-hmm. that we've had to suffer, particularly in, in the hands of Hollywood. I mean, publishing is also guilty of this, but cinema looms so large to so many of us when we're young that we may not realize the effect it had on us when we were watching the original Star Wars and there were no Black people in the future. Right. I guess nobody who had their uh, life together enough to to join up and get out in space or whatever. Uh, and if you look at old movies, uh, if, if it's set in the past, we're often not there. Or if we are there, we wish we weren't because there's such stereotypical roles. Mm-hmm. That was how white society wanted to see us. So Afrofuturism is really addressing, again, it's about past, present, future, all combined. When you look at a film like Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash, great example. She's an Afrofuturist, not just because she was the first Black woman to have a film in national release. Mm-hmm. And in the 1990s, by the way, <laughs> which is pretty late for that to be happening. But also what the film is about, it's about a grandmother holding on to rituals from the past that predated slavery at the turning point where her family is going to move to the mainland to address the future. And mm-hmm. they're using these new technologies like kaleidoscopes and cameras. You know, it's not new technology to the modern viewer, but in the film, which is set at the turn of the century, it's all about futurism embracing technology moving forward but nana saying over and over again do not forget where you come from do not forget the past do not forget the names that have shaped you mm-hmm. and that is the cradle i would call it like an emotional cradle that afrofuturism can help achieve is that we're out in the world all of us are scattered whether it's country by country or even within the same country we're in working America, you're the only one in the boardroom, you're the only one at your firm, you're the only one, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. so you need that reinforcement, like, oh, yeah, this isn't just me, I'm not crazy, that people talk a different way when I walk in the room, or that I'm being shut out of opportunities, or that I'm being followed around in this mall, it's like, because half the time, we're trained to believe it's in our heads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we're not, it's not us. It's our, our, it's the erasure. It's, it's everything. It's, it's the, uh, it's basically trying to uh, subjugate us. All of these things create an environment where we need an emotional cradle just to have uh, a healthy self-concept and a healthy vision of what our lives can be in the future. Beautifully, beautifully put, very beautifully put. And so much of where, Again, where we connect with mental health about that sense of our future, our sense of efficacy, our sense of confidence, yes. our sense of being in the world, yes. which even more so goes into the aspect of be able to create art. Absolutely. I mean, really, and this is something my husband likes to say, um, the, uh, what do you want to, let's say there was a computer program mm-hmm. that you needed to implant in every enslaved person for slavery to work. Right. And you call that the program slavery 1.0, mm-hmm. the Civil War and Juneteenth and all that do not erase that programming, number one. And they certainly do not erase the way society treats you. So it's mm-hmm. a sort of a twofold journey that we have been on as black people and in particular as African-Americans is to free ourselves from that programming that is passed generation by generation, whether it's cycles of uh, trauma, 
number one, mm-hmm. which can lead to cycles of abuse because, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, back in the day, some black parents felt like if I need to beat this lesson into you before you run into some white man on the street who might shoot you in the head instead. Right. That was the mentality. Right. And, and that's not universally true. And white parents also beat their children. But when you hear comedians talk about their upbringings, I hope they're kidding. Ooh, I remember D.L. Hughley once talked about how his mother hit him with her car when she was oh. mad at him. And I, I've never experienced laughing and crying at the same time. So, but, so I do believe that we have more than our share of that generational trauma and all the different aspects of that that still permeate some uh, families and some lives. All, you know, most of our families that either mm-hmm. we have worked through with therapy, worked through with love, you know, whatever it is, a, a lot of us have overcome so much and don't even know it. Don't even have any idea of how far we've come because society is fixated on telling us how far we have left to go. Very much. And that's one of those constant struggles. I know sitting in my office with my clients working on recognizing that and normalizing that that doesn't have to have been the course of things that was limitations of the person, but doesn't mean that it has to be the, your limitations right. or your choices. Absolutely not. And, and we're still very much in kind of a survival mindset, mm-hmm. right? Like the joke about if, if black people see someone running, they don't stop and, and ask, hey, what you what you running for? They t- you run, too. Mm-hmm. We'll figure it out when we get there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's survival mindset. And what we're trying to move toward now is not just to survive, but to thrive. And mm-hmm. thrive doesn't just mean financially, although that helps. Yeah. Poverty kills a lot of dreams and ruins a lot of lives. But it's also thriving emotionally thriving in our relationships, loving ourselves enough that we can be in a loving relationship with another person. That's a whole thing, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we're moving toward. And Afrofuturism definitely has a role in that to see images of heroism, images of courage, images of seeing us in space, interacting with technology, reimagining history. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of that Mm -hmm. is helping to create better mental health. And then, because most of the time when I think about horror, I don't usually think about it in Afrofuturism, but what you've laid out is a very good connection between the two. And in fact, as I was reading Ghost um, Ghost Summer, there was a couple of your stories that even though it, you listed what spawned, caused you to write those, I'm listening, I'm listening to them and it's like, wait a minute, there's an entire issue of what we deal with in mental health, like um, the first daughter. Or like mm-hmm. like daughter, like mother. like daughter, yes, yeah, which is pretty much dealing with the inner child, except True. in this case, Literally. it's actually a physical child outside of yourself going through these experiences. I'm glad um, you saw that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I was going through that. It's like, oh, that is just literally that. And there was another one, and I'm hate to say I'm suddenly blanking on it. That's where okay. um, that was like, okay, here's another psychological theme we deal with in trying to help people heal. Well, Um, one of them, uh, one of the newer stories, which I can't even think of the title of it now that you mention it, Vanishing, uh, I think it's called. Is that the one you were thinking of? No, but there was a different one um, that was in there. I think it was just before that. I don't think it was the werewolf one. Um, But it's dealing with death, dealing with grieving, dealing with acceptance, dealing mm -hmm. with um, survival, like Mm -hmm. the, the pandemic stories, you know, which is so interesting now when we are in a pandemic 
And there is a conversation where people are trying to pressure each other to take their masks off. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, between, <laughs> yeah, between the uh, danger word, which was a lovely piece, which as I'm lis- listening to it, I'm sort of thinking, it's like, oh, this is another variant on what would happen if we played out invasion of the body snatchers with mm-hmm. zombie horror standpoint, mm-hmm. but also the ones with, um, oh, I just listened to it. I should have made notes on it. Uh, the vent, the three vignettes uh, uh, characters. And yes, also, the one, the pandemic stories. Yeah, yeah, and especially that one at the end where she finds out she does have a daughter, and mm. now she can have that connection, which she fundamentally lost in the first section with her grandmother's. True, past. I had to try to give her some peace, you know. But um, mm-hmm. that the whole point of that story, which is called Carriers, now that I think about it, is leading up to the moment of being willing to open the door. Right. Mm -hmm. So the point of the story is not what happens after you open the door, whether that's going to be a good relationship or a bad relationship. It's about Mm -hmm. getting like someone who has been through so much abuse and trauma over Mm -hmm. a lifetime in a laboratory because she was naturally immune to a disease that wiped out most Mm -hmm. of the people in the country. So she Mm -hmm. was basically a lab rat for for 30 years um, to trust again, Mm -hmm. to be willing to open the door. And that speaks to the approach to relationships obviously mm-hmm. that can speak to parenting mm-hmm. where people are not able or willing to give enough of themselves that they can truly nurture their children uh mm-hmm. because that relationship is too taxing or cuts too deep mm-hmm. or overdoing it like in a like daughter where you're you're literally thinking you're supposed to be raising your own clone which is so ridiculous because even if there were clones, they would not be like us. That's what people don't understand. We are not just our DNA. We are our experiences. Okay. So you can't, even someone with my same DNA raised differently would have a different life. Exactly. And it's not saying that the rate, the whole idea of genetic memory isn't going to have an effect, but it's not going to necessarily take the same stance because it's entirely different situation. Yeah. It's not the determinant. It's Mm -hmm. a determinant. Mm -hmm. Which always brings back to what I'm talking about with clients. It's not purely nature versus nurture. It is nature and nurture. Yes. How did you nurture that nature? How did you nurture the kindness? Equally, how did people nurture the harm? Well put. Well put. So I think that's a perfect place for us to take a break. Oh, great. So this is fun. uh, (laughs) That's my hope. Uh, So uh, tune in, folks. So we're going to be continuing our conversation here with Tanana Reeve Do. Hey, like an expert. Thank you. I'm Perry Clark on on Tangle Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. So stay tuned. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information.
You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks. It's time for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm here with Tanana Reeve-Dew for our second half. So, Tiana, Tiana, you have you and your delightful husband, Stephen Barnes, started a podcast uh, called Life Writing. So, and I know I'm one of the listeners, even if I don't particularly write. Um, but I'm a, I am a tabletop role-playing player, so that's where I get to create stories. Great. But what? tell me some more about that podcast and what it brings in. And again, how are you continuing to do what we talked about earlier, inspiring others to write? You know, it's, it's kind of funny with the podcast because Steve has been teaching life writing since mm-hmm. before we met. And we've been married mm-hmm. for 23 years. You know, I mm-hmm. found a, a box of videotapes marked life writing. So he's been at this for a long, long time. And it's basically a philosophy about writing tied to Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey, which mm-hmm. uh, it's not all inclusive, but basically describes the steps that people recognize as storytelling. The mm-hmm. hero is confronted with a challenge. The hero rejects the challenge. The hero starts the road of trials, uh, friends and allies. It's like every beat of every major film you've ever seen, you can probably mm-hmm. chart like from Star Wars to seven, you know, he's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, he doesn't want the case. Now he wants the case. Now he's going to have to be an ally with Brad Pitt. Oh, now they're going to have a setback. So uh, it can sound like it's a formula, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is that that is the way the human brain for the most part understands storytelling. We, we know we're in a story when a conflict emerges, you know, if it's, if there's no conflict, there's no story. Right. Mm-hmm. So the point was, to help writers chart their own path through the creative process as if they're the protagonist. You are going to reject the challenge. You are going to finally accept the challenge. You are going, you right now, you're listening to this podcast or you're writing your first short story. You are embarking on your road of trials, right? So, because sometimes it's easier to steer your own life Mm-hmm. If you're thinking in terms of how you would steer a fictitious person's life and, mm-hmm. and you start to see the parallels between the two. So that's sort of in a nutshell, the philosophy of life writing. But like I said, we've been teaching it for years. We used to do like uh, there was like an old streamer called Talk Shoe mm-hmm. where you could record broadcasts. This was before podcasting. We didn't know nothing about no podcasting. We would do Facebook lives. And then mm-hmm. literally in January, we were like, OK, you know what? We're going to take these same conversations we've been having for years and we're going to start a podcast. We're going to call it a podcast now. And the difference in the reach mm-hmm. <laughs> when you call something a podcast, as opposed to when you're just doing the same stuff you've been doing, it's amazing. I mean, with like, our second guest was Patton Oswalt, who's one of my favorite comedians is like what in the world Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show was our first guest and we're like what is happening but it's just because uh podcasting is a tight-knit community and people Mm -hmm. who do podcasts like to interact with other people who do podcasts so there's just I don't know there's this added reach and full disclosure Mm -hmm. we we sell a course called Life Writing Premium so really uh the podcasting piece is it's edutainment 
but mm-hmm. it's also meant like for people who are aspiring writers to leave them to lifewritingpremium.com where you can get like a 52 week download course where you dig in a little more deeply. And the reason we do that full disclosure is because we want, um, we don't want to have to rely on Hollywood mm-hmm. or anyone else for our income if we can mm-hmm. help it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, we sell courses. I sell an Afrofuturism course at afrofuturismwebinar.com. I sell a horror course at sunkenplaceclass.com. Jordan Peele was a guest on that mm-hmm. right before he won his Oscar. He Skyped in for that class. Um, and it really is, even if it's only emotional, so that we know we're not relying on Hollywood, because we feel like the minute we start doing that, everything dries up. It's like mm-hmm. you have to kind of watch Hollywood at the corner of your eye, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's there, but I'm not paying any attention to you. <laughs> and then you're going to start paying attention to me. Meanwhile, if you're if you're broke and desperate, woo, it's it's a it's it's brutal uh, well, trying trying to work in Hollywood. Well, just to use some of the metaphor what we talked about, if you're broke and desperate, you're no different than a sharecropper. Well, there it is, and they certainly mm-hmm. see you that way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've mm-hmm. had the blessing of an experience recently with uh, my second novel. Well, since this is coming out in September, I'll go ahead and say so. I don't care. <laughs> my second novel, My Soul to Keep, has mm-hmm. just been put into TV development with uh, Topic Studios, um, which did a movie called Nanny, uh, a black horror movie called Nanny that's coming out later this year. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so that's a big thing for us. It's a huge thing to be able to write the pilot. That's something we had to fight for uh, mm-hmm. up until very recently whenever my books were optioned and I've had it done many times. So that excitement kind of wears off after a while where you're like, well, where's the movie? Where's the TV show? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's 20 years later. Nothing's happened yet. My first adaptation was on Shudder, uh, a little short piece based on the lake, which was mm-hmm. in my, my collection. And that's the first one in almost 30 years. Right. So it's been a long haul mm-hmm. and things are going better than ever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't want to put all of our eggs in that basket. We still write short stories. We still write novels. But and we you know, we're trying to get into the scripted podcast business because mm-hmm. we just love telling stories. Mm-hmm. But it's just a matter of having had those lean years. And we've told some of those horror stories in our podcast. So you might that the podcast is. I've listened to them because I know that that brings up to that standpoint of, I know from the therapy side of it, what does it also mean about relationship and relationship to money and money psychology? Not just money literacy, not just money literature, literacy, but money psychology. And I often say that how we use money is also a reflection of our self-esteem or self-worth as well. So and it can take many forms to appear it, but it's being aware of that. That's uh, interesting and so well put. You know, um, we have a lot of income fluctuations as freelancers, mm-hmm. and especially before we started telling TV, uh, selling TV scripts. Uh, but we've done very well. We've been very fortunate these past couple of years. And there are some things that we should have been doing that we that we aren't. You know, in mm-hmm. terms of managing that money. Mm-hmm. But I think the part that's healthiest if you can call it healthy, is that we're kind of the same people, you know, we're, I, mm-hmm. I don't feel any different when the the bank account is healthy mm-hmm. than I did when the bank account was sketchy, right? It, mm-hmm. it, I feel like we're the same people at heart. Um, and there are some habits we need to establish that are 
better habits for sure. Cause we're mm-hmm. not used to having that much, you know, we're, we're, we're used to, I think a lot of people are used to that salaried income, mm-hmm. but when it's freelancing income, that's a whole different ball game and, and having to manage it ourselves, you know, we have a lot to learn about that, but keeping grounded, I think is very important and learning along the way, being willing mm-hmm. to learn, knowing you need to learn. Like I get, I have a lot to learn about money psychology, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. (laughs) I have a lot to learn about it. Um, And we hope to be making a lot more of it. Mm -hmm. So, and and I think part of it is getting past the idea that there's something evil inherently about money, because even though, you know, we can all point to supervillains who have way too much money. And I think I do believe that at a certain point, if you have a certain amount of money, that's, that's, blood money somewhere you know yeah. i mean somebody's uh bleeding and doing without so you can have more at a certain mm-hmm. point like when mm-hmm. you get to a certain mm-hmm. billionaire status you mm-hmm. know i'm not i'm not even putting millionaires in that category but once you get to a certain billionaire status it's like okay you are sucking more than you're giving way mm-hmm. more than you're giving mm-hmm. um and because of that because we can all point to those super villains sometimes especially people who traditionally who have not had a lot of money It makes us feel better and morally superior that we don't have that. And I think that that is not uh, an optimal viewpoint about money Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because poverty is so painful and poverty does close off so many um, opportunities. And it's not that you feel bad if you're living in poverty about being poor. What I'm talking about is a mindset that says it's okay to try to find ways not to be poor. It's not going against your family. It's not going against your values to have a bank account that is comfortable for you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and honestly, for most people, that's not their problem. <laughs> their problem is that they've been cut off from income means and they haven't figured out ways to, to especially during COVID. Oh my goodness, there's so much instability. Mm-hmm. But, but there's just enough of that mindset. And Steve was always on me about that because I would say things uh, about billionaires or whatever. Um, it's not evil to have money. Mm-hmm. And that's not a healthy mindset. It's what you do with it. And I believe the classic statement is uh, greed is not the, it's not the love of money that is the the sin or the greed. It is the, uh, no, how did that phrase go? It is, greed is, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Right. You cannot worship it above all, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really more watching it out of the corner of your eye again, just like with Hollywood, while you invest your energy and your relationships in your self-fulfillment mm-hmm. in, in, in if you want to learn how to write then putting your energy there. But don't forget about the money piece because it, it does rear up sometimes. And especially if there's illness uh, with our healthcare system, the way it is just mm-hmm. devastating They need money and not have it. And all of that can go into what we are looking to learn to thrive after the centuries we've been through mm. and find that. And that's why I say there, there is a psychology around how we relate to money. That is also part of our healing. That is also under the laundry list of stuff we're working on healing to move us so ourselves forward as people. That's true. I mean, it goes pretty deep. Even some people's entire perception of what blackness is. Mm-hmm. is rooted to a socioeconomic status point. 
when in fact there are black people at every socioeconomic level who mm-hmm. have had absolutely genuine experiences and some people whose grandparents went to college, mm-hmm. you know, and some people mm-hmm. who you're the first generation to go to college, all of us black, mm-hmm. all of us black. So that's part of it. Uh, and also that um, not necessarily the, the crabs in the barrel I addressed with my son and what he noticed about some of his friends pushing back because he's mm-hmm. trying or they perceive he's trying to separate from them, you know, taking it personally when, when people, or striving, you know, what I mean, right. that kind of thing. But what's I think more important is not the other people's actions or perceptions, it's self-perception mm-hmm. that is the most important to kind of have the armor and the faith to believe that if your path is taking you out of one place, that you will find tribe waiting for you in the next place. Mm-hmm. Because human beings are herd creatures. And it's not that Black people need, all Black people need or want to be around nothing but Black people all the time. But when you're completely isolated from other Black people, you are more vulnerable mm-hmm. to not just literally physical attack, but exclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, people not um, empathizing with you. People mm-hmm. not, like, you can not see color all you want, but that teacher sees the color of your child. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? So... That police officer sees color, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so yeah. it gets into the mental emotional side it, of this. It really does. So you you have to have sort of faith that your tribe, whatever your tribe may be, is waiting for you on the other side. That tribe may be a bunch of writers, only few of whom are also people of color. Mm-hmm. And that might feel like a great tribe, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's the fear of isolation that holds some of us back and also the mystique and the mystery of it. Because if you've never written a short story, you've never written a novel, you've never, especially if you've never written a screenplay, you don't even know what a screenplay looks like. You have to sort of demystify it. You seek out role models and those role models can turn into literal mentors. The difference being someone who can talk to you Mm. and help guide you, you know, Mm -hmm. someone can be a role model from afar, but a mentor is actually in conversation with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, giving yourself permission to find those people, to seek those people out, to listen to what they say, no matter how painful it is sometimes. And then at an even higher level, the ability to extract what is useful and what is not useful. Right. I had a great mentor, the late novelist Elon Harris, when I first started publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote uh, Invisible Life about bisexual Black men and, and was one of the first he was the first New York Times bestselling black male author since Alex Haley in the 19th. So he, it was like huge sales and he taught me a lot and what he shared with me about his experiences. But I also learned by his lifestyle, he was traveling half the time. So I Mm -hmm. knew if I, and I had a family, I had a son, there was no way I either wanted to, or it would be possible for me to be on the road half a year. That was just never going to be happening. So I was able to then scale back my expectations and say, oh, I want to be like Elon Harris, but I don't want to be like him in that way. Right. And unfortunately, he died very young in his 50s, I believe, pitching in Hollywood, literally on a pitching trip to Hollywood. So we can also learn from the experiences of others Mm -hmm. that on the way to your dream, no matter what that dream is, there are real pitfalls that can literally cost you your life. 
literally cost you your life. So, and some of those things are lack of sleep, which leads to health issues, even if not immediately down the line, it will Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. living too much in our heads Mm -hmm. and not paying attention to moving our bodies, yoga or, or walking or what I don't mean. Everybody has to spend all day in the gym, but -hmm. especially those of us who are creatives and and we don't work with our hands. (laughs) Sometimes we forget we have a body. Right. Right. And and, but believe me, that body will not forget us. You know, so once we get older, we start to feel that stiffness rather than accepting that as a part of aging, which it is to a degree. Mm -hmm. We understand there are things that we can do. We can move. Mm -hmm. We can do yoga. There are things that we can do that feel less stiffness. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Uh, Yeah, because there's the thought that also comes to mind is this is also what we're looking at with those who are our creatives, our artists to find those things as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of the mental health piece, you know, one thing Mm -hmm. I quite like about my podcast is, and you, I'm sure you get this too, is that people are so honest about their struggles. If you ask them a question, Mm -hmm. you know, they will talk about the voices in the middle of the night. Brian Fuller, one of the most successful showrunners in television, writer, showrunner, talks about the voices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's getting the voices and of course you're going to get the voices telling you you're not worth anything, that you're no good at this. So you're in the wrong business, right? If if he can get that, you can get that. Or N.K. Jemison talking about how she's having the hardest time writing her current novel of all her other novels. So you writer out there who's also struggling. Yeah, she is too. So you're not alone in that. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that that's something that we all need to hear because in isolation, as a lot of us are, even when we're not under pandemic, but just because of those the way the world is. Yeah. Just not feeling like we fit in with those around us and still looking for our tribe. Yeah. There's no town square where everybody's hanging out, you know, sharing experiences. Uh, mm-hmm. August Wilson, uh, the late playwright had a long conversation back when we lived in Steve and I lived in Seattle or near mm-hmm. Seattle and he lived in Seattle about what integration did to black communities. You know, mm-hmm. that was what my parents fought for. Mm-hmm. But then there were some unforeseen impacts, mm-hmm. which is that the role models left the neighborhood. So whereas before it was the school teacher and the banker and the lawyer and the wino side by side. Right. <laughs> Every, you know, you, you get the scattering of the neighborhoods and, and kids lose those visual role models. Um and it's just something that all of us have to remind ourselves that we, we don't thrive in isolation. We do not, we're not, I mean, yeah, we can be self-taught to a certain degree, mm-hmm. but one of the things uh, my husband, Stephen Barnes talks about is that when he wrote his alternate history, Lion's Blood, which is a novel about what would happen if the Americas had been colonized by Africans bringing European mm-hmm. slaves. And it's just sort of a mind game mm-hmm. and changing that history and whether a reader can even bring themselves to believe in that change of history, whether black or white, mm-hmm. because of their internalized feelings about why history happened the way it did, right? Um, it's simple why history, I mean, not simple, but I, populations that are isolated do not progress as quickly as populations that are in the constant flow of commerce and travel and interactions with other cultures. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is where all of our technological breakthroughs happen is in these. So if you're in Australia, an island 
mm-hmm. you're an indigenous population, you're living there the way your ancestors lived there probably hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago, because you're off, you're out of the flow of commerce and interaction and North to South Africa as a continent was not able to have as much of that interaction as they would have needed to have to stand up against Europe, where you can literally walk mm-hmm. from one end of this landmass to the other and have horses. You didn't even have to walk. <laughs> you had damn horses. You did not have damn horses in Africa. And zebras could not be uh, domesticated. So, and this is stuff he got from uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, mm-hmm. uh, the book Guns, Germs, and Steel. But it's like, oh, and whether or not it's all 100% accurate or whatever. The point is, too often we don't ask ourselves why things happen the way they did, whether it's all of racial history mm-hmm. or whether it's just your current relationship status. You know, it's like, let's stop and go and ask ourselves, why were you attracted to this person in the first place? Was it, yeah. was it their emotional unavailability that you always knew about from the very beginning and they never hide, hid from you? They were emotionally unavailable from the start. That used to be my big thing. Ooh, if you were emotionally unavailable, it was like catnip to me. Why was that? Because my father, who was an intellectual, who was an only child raised by his grandparents and his grandfather was too exhausted at the end of the day to even have a conversation with him half the time. He worked at a foundry and he had no friends and he used to sit in a tree. He learned how to live in his head. And he did not unlearn living in his head just because he had children. So Mm -hmm. very often he was behind the closed door writing on a legal pad. And that writing, yes, I could emulate that. And he could pass that love of writing to me without even needing to talk to me. But that closed door, that was the thing I was always trying to open, right? I was always trying to open that closed door. (laughs) So if if I encountered someone whose door was wide open, that wasn't interesting to me until I had some therapy. Right. And, uh, I'm sure therapy helped with making that realization. Absolutely. True. And that's what I was getting to. A lot of my yeah. guests on the podcast, probably every single one has talked about therapy mm-hmm. and the role. I was therapy. noticing that even when we don't ask them, they, they, mm-hmm. they volunteer. Oh, and therapy helps. It's like, damn right. It helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the biggest misconception to ever land upon our people with all of our survival strategies and all of our strength. I mean, yeah, it's true. When you have a grandparent who can tell you stories about being a sharecropper or running away from the clan and your friends, the grandparents had a very different experience. <laughs> it's easy to believe that you are of tougher stock and that the kinds of things that get them down would not get mm-hmm. you down. But guess what? We do get down. Mm-hmm. We do have depression. We do have suicide. And in fact, it's one of the highest uh, rising uh, groups for, uh, I think, adolescent suicide is among Black teenagers, I think. So that's that's always been a lie. Um, we, we Maybe we hide some of it better, you know, that strength that Black women have or whatever, mm-hmm. supposedly. So maybe we seem like we're carrying it better, but there's a cost. Mm-hmm. And, and I know in my family, uh, whether it was my late mother who had a Apparently, some psychologist told her 50, 60 years ago that she didn't need therapy, and she took that as scripture. Yeah, we need to get a lot of that. Who definitely could use some, you know, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, we need it too. Mm-hmm. Well, I like to say that just because you got new perspectives on things doesn't mean you didn't get new blind spots as well. Exactly. Exactly. So I wish um, 
even rudimentary therapy were available to everyone free of cost, like in high school, you know, or mm-hmm. middle school, really starting mm-hmm. early. But a lot more people are starting to seek it out. And one of the, I hate to use the term benefits of COVID, but one thing that happened during COVID is that more teletherapy, telehealth became available. Um, so it may have its limitations, mm-hmm. but honestly, a Zoom call is better than no call as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Well, I, <laughs> I'm in that profession, so I wholly <laughs> support that. And I can also easily say for if there's listeners and you're young enough, we need more of you, especially people of color coming into this profession as well, just my, to help create my, the normality of this. My son says that he would like to study psychology, you know, and we we're so excited about that, whether he does it or not, just the idea that he wants to, mm-hmm. because during COVID where we thought we were losing, losing him to the gaming world, like literally like mm-hmm. it seemed like that was all he was doing all the time with all these nameless, faceless people that we did not know or trust because mm-hmm. we don't know who they are. Um, he found that people who were, having emotional distress shared with him, mm-hmm. took advice from him. And he likes coaching people. He likes helping people feel better. So I think that's great. Well, we definitely have the need for that. And coaching, whether it is as a marriage and family therapist, a social worker, a life coach, all of those things are places where our goal is helping people and helping people thrive away from where we have been. Exactly. Back to where we used to be. Exactly. So I cannot immensely thank you for this chat. And where can people find you if they're interested in talking with you more or at least listening to your podcast more? Yeah, check out www.lifewritingpodcast.com. There's not only an episode guide, and we've had so many amazing guests in such a short time. I can't believe it. But also there's a way you can leave us a voicemail and communicate with us directly uh, when you go to that site. So, So check it out. Perfect. Well, Tanana Reeve, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to when this airs and I'm going to keep reading. Thank you for having me here. And I appreciate it. Keep doing what you do. You too. Thank you. So folks, tune in next time on In the Voice America Network to hear our next podcast as we are looking at what we're going to do for after finishing this year of podcasting. There's more on the way. So stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.